do I sound okay on your end? Yeah, you, you sound fantastic today. So that's good. How how am I how am I over there? Sounding good? Yeah, Sounding yeah, normal? good, good. Sound uh, as normal as you always that's, sound. That's true. It's not very normal. You are exceedingly. You're the normalist one. <laughs> I'm, I'm secretly I'm secretly the normal one of the podcast. Uh, no one's gonna believe that. No, no one's no gonna one. believe that about it's, it's you. It's a terrible cover. <laughs> Uh, that although you know that makes me the normal one, which I don't know how I feel about. You know, I think at the end of the day, neither of us are the normal one. I think we're both uh, two two different kinds, two two different brands of, of like incredibly strange, uh, incredibly online. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not helping us either. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's really not. It's really not. I mean, it's making us more powerful, and the, the more online we become, the more we transcend the the weak flesh of humanity. Yeah, I, I, you know, you go out in the world and it's it's like that moment uh, in the Matrix where when Neo kind of sees <laughs> through the code. But it's, but it's all just drill tweets. <laughs> it's actually funny to me that this <laughs> that, that this is the drill. Drill has managed to kind of like collectively break the brain of like an entire generation of people. I, I really, I really think it's that like Drill is the only one using Twitter correctly. Yes, a hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. Like, given given everything that goes on in that website, it's it's really the only account worth worth even like paying attention to. It kind of bottles everything. It's perfect. Do you have what's your favorite drill drill tweet? I've been spending the last seven years of my life making a ROM hack of Super Mario RPG where everyone is pregnant. I expect to make $100 from it. <laughs> uh, Ash is like, wow, just at me next time. I, I, was, I was like, oh man, now I can't release that project or people will think I'm, I'm cribbing on Drill. This isn't fair. Uh, and then there's, there's the one which I feel like describes me uh, the best. Yeah. Uh, which is, wh which one do you think it would be? I honestly don't know. There, there are just so many good drill tweets. Uh, it's uh, who the fuck is screaming? <laughs> log off at my house. Show yourself, coward. Yes. I will never log off. <laughs> okay, yeah, that one. That one is probably the most you drill tweet possible. <laughs> Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost. I mean, host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Ah, uh, Twitter. Uh, Speaking of Twitter, today's movie is Carnival of Souls from 1962. <laughs> the segues, segues are weird, aren't they? Segues, we, we, we are continuing our amazing ability to segue in the weirdest possible way right i don't think i don't think any any one of our segues has been smooth or coherent no no none fine. of them have been good <laughs> uh so after after the the um the experience let's put it like that of watching darren aronofsky's mother which uh is bad and is not good um that was my choice and so as a kind of penance uh I decided that I would let Ash choose another film. Um, and you chose Carnival of Souls from 1962. Uh, so why don't we start? Why, do, why, why this? Why did, you, why did you do this to me? 
what what is this <laughs> so 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 i'm i'm broadening your horizons and your tastes in cinema is, is the 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 greater project here and we went hard with the black tower last time like the black tower is like that's some that's some like real uncut art house uh uh content mm-hmm. but you know carnival of souls is like it's like one of the like it's not a lost classic, but it's it's definitely not given the discourse it deserves. No, I think that's I think that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. Like like this film is is criminally underplayed in the greater like spooky cinema criticism crowd. Like I don't I don't know why it's been so overlooked when it's just just an incredible film, and it was shot on a budget of like like it was like under thirty thousand dollars. Like shoe so, string here. So, um, why don't we start by doing what you kind of normally do, which is to give a like a little overview of this film, and yeah, yeah obviously spoilers as per usual are in full effect. Spoilers, and if you haven't seen the movie from 1962, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have you been doing? <laughs> right. So, uh, the movie the movie opens up in in like a quintessential piece of american 50s culture it opens up with uh two two women in a car and then there are two men in a car pulled up next to them and 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 the men are like hey ladies how about a drag race you know being kind of you know like 50s flirtatious which today reads as like a little too aggressive uh to, to be nice about it yeah, they're a little too keen, the, really, aren't they? The uh, unnamed woman who's driving the car um, is kind of into it. You know, she's kind of receptive, and she's like, ha okay, let's do it. And, but her passenger, um, uh, Mary Henry, our, our protagonist of the film, is is really not keen on this race. Like, you can tell by, by her facial expression and her body language that she's just like, oh, get this over with. Like, it's a bad idea. Mm. But she's not, she's not very vocal about her concerns. Uh, then the the pair start on a drag race and they reach a rickety wooden bridge. Uh, the car with the two women uh, careens off the bridge and kind of depending on how you read the scenes in the race, it's either because the men are, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, bad at driving and kind of like swerving a little bit or perhaps they just lose control of their own accord. The movie isn't very clear about this. Uh, the, the car careens off the side, and then we uh, cut to a scene where it's a beautiful cut, by the way. It's it's like a, a, a dissolve through like shots of like really like sandy, thick water flowing. Fantastic. Yeah, filming. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the editing and kind of shot selection in this is so good. It's and, and like a, a, a like a side note about this, like a lot of like the. Um, cine- cinematography of Carnival of Souls was dictated by. Uh, what what was available like the pier that it was shot on was just kind of there <laughs> and could be used yeah absolutely there's a kind of guerrilla yes making yes kind of techniques going on all through this absolutely like um where is it it, it was yeah it's the yeah they filmed it at the abandoned um salt air pavilion in salt lake city utah and a lot of the other like the that's really cool the the decision to um incorporate all of the organ elements just kind of naturally occurred in the film because they had access to a bunch of different settings that had organs in them. They had an actress who can play the organ and that kind of folded naturally into the text of the film. But we'll get into that later. So, so, Mm. um, 
you know, we, we, we cut to rescue workers and kind of townspeople trying to fish the car out of the water and find its location. We, we hear a comment from from one of uh, it looks like just, you know, someone from the local community who's come to help in the rescue effort saying that the car has been under there for three hours now. And the way that these, you know, like the, the muddy, sandy water of this river functions, it's probably been buried and lost forever by then. Yeah, but yeah. then then we get a shot of uh, Mary Henry uh, uh, waking up and kind of uh, standing up uh, on the sandbar in the middle of the river. Uh, and then, you know, she's she's saved and uh, basic overview of the rest of the plot. She makes a decision to uh, move out to Salt Lake City, get a job uh, playing the organ in a church. And through the course of the film, uh, she she becomes increasingly alienated from society Often to a literal extent, unable to hear or interact with any of the people around her. And the entire time, she's haunted by um, the character known only as The Man, played by uh, the uh, director of the film, Herc Harvey. And he's like a, a ghoulish looking figure with very like um, uh, Night of the Living Dead looking makeup on. This was a big influence on Romero. Mm -hmm. I can kind of... I, I think I read that somewhere, and I think you can you can definitely see how and why uh, Night of the Living Dead has the kind of look that it does. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this movie this movie has uh, characters known as zombies that appear at the end that kind of yeah, very yeah, yeah. strongly mimic what we'll go on to see later once zombie cinema proper begins to take off. But but it, I guess it's worth pointing out now that like this this exists way before there was any conventionality of zombies. So while they're called zombies. They aren't living undead, brought back to life through some kind mm. of biological or magical means. You know, they're, they're, they, they pre-exist the Romero-style zombie where they're the risen dead come to eat flesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, in, a way, in a way, quite reminiscent of um, the zombies from White Zombie, yep. the old Bela Lugosi film from the 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, was back, this was back before the modern zombie coalesced and back when zombies were... Um, either really racist interpretations of uh, Haitian folklore systems mm. or or just kind of like a stand-in for some kind of like ghoulish, otherworldly, humanoid monster. So what do you... Where, where do you want to kind of start with this as a kind of film that you think is useful for a uh leftist theorizing and leftist uh organizing in the world uh where do you want to where, where do you want to begin that is a fantastic question for this film um so i think that i mean i mean i mentioned this in my my little uh synopsis of the film but i think that for me one of the strongest uh check in my notes Check in my notes. Do, do. Uh, one of the strongest um, kind of kind of like left thematic elements of this theme is this theme of alienation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, after we we don't really get to know Mary Henry before her car accident and before before the trauma no. that occurs to that. You know, the only bit we know about her before that is she really wasn't into two aggressive dudes. And I I do sort of like it that that was that was. That was how you flirted in the, in the early 60s. That he was like, hey, want to have a drag race? It's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah, all right. That's how you meet somebody. If you go out drag racing your car. 
And it's like, it makes a lot of, like, you know, the concerns about millennial dating culture seem quite tame, really. I mean, the, you know, the last time I slid into somebody's DM and I was like, hey, good looking, how about we drag across the strip? I didn't get a response, so this definitely doesn't hold anymore. <laughs> that is not how things work anymore. Right, yes, uh, it's completely, <laughs> completely different now. Um, yeah, and so that, they, they kind of emerge as being someone who is... Um, not keen on the sort of conventional social practices that you know you you ha- kind of have to go through yeah i mean i mean right? like, like that- mary mary isn't keen on any social practice like like after post post her her traumatic car crash which depending on how you read the end of the movie was her death um mm-hmm. you you enter into the space where, where where she's kind of alienated from all of society she doesn't really fit in yeah. anywhere and and she's she's very aggressive about the fact like like she picks up a job in Salt Lake City as a church organist, and you know like like there are there are several different uh, points in the film where um, either the the father of the church or the um, owner of the organ factory kind of confront her and they're like you're you know you're like you're going you're going to play music at a church right like the this shouldn't be just a job for you. You should feel something in your soul. You know, you're, you're going to be working with a community. You're going to be trying to like give them something spiritual through your music. And Mary's just kind of mm-hmm. like, eh, you know, it's a job. I'm going to work it till it's done. And then who knows what's after that. I don't really care about the rest of this stuff. No, exactly. There's a sort of, um, there's a sort of kind of like anhedonia, right? Mm-hmm. An inability to, to be kind of happy, to feel anything other than uh, like seemingly boredom, and uh a kind of disconnection from the rest of the world yeah and And there's so many so many amazing shots where like she's framed a really like so isolated and alone uh like at strange angles so this is someone who's always been kind of like disjointed from the rest of society yeah yeah and i think that um you know like the choice to film in black and white is very interesting like color film was available as early as 1932, but it certainly wasn't popularized until much later. Mm. But like when you when you um, film or photograph in black and white, like it's all about highlighting contrasts and shape and line. And like Harvey was so good at doing that with this film. Yeah, there's some incredible like kind of chiaroscuro oh, yeah. uh, compositions. There, there's so like many that. shots of Mary's face. Where she's just consumed by the shadow around her. The shadow is thick like the water that she sank into. The man, mm. play, played by her Carvey, also kind of like lives in that liminal, shadowy space that Mary is constantly struggling through, through throughout the, the film. And like, like, like just the way it's filmed, the way she's constantly driving and moving and floating through the world, you know, just, just, just really yeah. encapsulates that liminal kind of phantasmal, half dead, half alive space that she's in. So, where, what, what? Aside from this kind of idea of alienation and of like isolation, where do you think the kind of interest uh, for a leftist uh, take on this film lies? So for me, it kind of comes from that, right? Like, like, like what I was saying with um, her working at the church and and her conversation with the owner of the organ factory. <clears throat> you know, like, like because we we hear this about every job, right? Like, oh, like you know, like like you're 
you're not working at McDonald's. You're you're feeding a community or something like that. Like that's, that's all yeah, yeah. over corporate propaganda. You know, like like you know when when you work at Sears, you don't have customers. You have guests. You know, mm-hmm. and like like that like that, that's such a bizarre phrasing. Like you have guests over for a dinner party or something. You don't have guests yeah, yeah, yeah. to your store. And that 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 kind of like like language where they're they're demanding that someone find meaning in labor yeah, that inherently in negates in, meaning under a capitalist system it's it's in something which is so uh actually often superfluous and and uh you know done solely for the sake of it rather than any kind yes. of genuine interest or need even to, to quote uh, to quote my patronus and and friend of the podcast it is pure ideology <laughs> Uh, friend of the show, Slavo G. Jack. <laughs> that, that would be the coolest thing ever. Uh, Slavo, come on, Horror Vanguard. You know, I think he would. Oh, he, to- he totally would. He totally would. We would just have to record in a, in a dumpster. And we would probably have to talk about Hitchcock, right? We'd almost certainly have to talk about Hitchcock. Oh, we, we'll, we'll save the Hitchcock episode for when Zizek gets back to us about being on the show. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Uh, DM us, yeah, ch- ch- Slavo, check, check your DMs at um, uh, Zizek Tweets. um and let us know yeah i think i think that's that's definitely part of like the modern reception to a film like this but i also think there's probably there's a lot about this which is very of its time oh yeah definitely yeah this is a lot Um, that just doesn't happen anymore in in in, like contemporary american culture at least not in the same way what that but what that's really what's really interesting about that is that it allows for the kind of revealing of the cultural anxieties of like early 60s america so like this idea of kind of social isolation and atomization uh the 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 idea of moving for work rather than you know creating a kind of movable uh fluid labor force rather than people who were kind of uh enmeshed in in a particular community that's probably something that's very current with um what's concerning the the this film um and of course the 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 obsolescence of labor right because mm-hmm. that becomes oh, yeah. an incredibly important point uh when we get to the carnival which we can talk about in more detail oh we will uh, yep. in in just a little bit um so i think it's it's both very very timely and very uh of its time and that's no criticism but it's just the kind of this is why I think it's only kind of built a reputation as, as you know, as, as we've kind of moved on. It's become sort of a well-regarded uh, sort of cult classic um, in screenings which are much more sort of recent uh, rather than being anything that got a lot of attention when it first came out, right? Yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Like, I haven't looked into the history of how this film was received when it when it was first released apparently didn't get a great deal of attention yeah. which seems like a crying shame because there's so much in it which is uh so fascinating it's it's german expressionist revival it is a shame that like this film didn't get pick up a lot of traction when it was first released i know right um but clearly clearly there was uh something here that kind of blocked uh the 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 audience engaging with it um but you know you say it's like german expressionism what it really reminds me of is a lot of like late 40s british horror yeah um 
one of one film that this made me think of a lot is Dead of Night, um, which is another film about kind of alienation and about um, kind of dealing with trauma. Uh, and is a kind of if you've never seen it, it's um, sort of like a compendium film of like short stories, um, which were then turned kind of edited together with an overarching frame narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's really good and really interesting and features one of the scariest uh, mannequins dolls in all of all of 20th century <laughs> horror. Um, we might have to do an episode on Devil. Oh, we absolutely will. Like, that sounds great. But, but like, but like, um, like that, this film is another film that's kind of trying to process a kind of traumatic event, um, responding to these themes of alienation. Uh, and yeah, so it's interesting that these, there's this kind of like, and German expressionism is, is like the kind of cinematic representation of trauma, right? Oh yeah, G- German expressionism is is probably my favorite kind of like if I if I like stranded on a desert island, I can only take one like niche genre of film with me. It, it's German expressionism. Yeah. I think it's like it's so emotionally evocative while being silent, and I think that that's one of this movie's great strengths, despite its focus on on kind of organ music as a conceptual piece. So there's this there's this uh, theme that you brought up of the kind of like alienation of labor, um, the fact that you know our character moves for a job that they don't really seem to care about, to put it mildly. Um, but there's also this this kind of uh, and this alienation does kind of reach a high point when they have these kind of how would you describe them these kind of moments where they sort of seem to even kind of like phase out of reality almost right yeah and they can't be they can't be heard they can't talk to anybody um i, I if you look at it purely on the level of uh, a film about kind of alienated labor that's a really kind of striking metaphor for a kind of you know the marginalization of certain kinds of work i think it's, i think it's really interesting too that the first scene that this happens during the first time that mary can't uh, interact with the world around her where, where she both cannot hear anyone around her nor can she be heard by anyone around her is when she's at a general store trying to buy a new dress yeah like yeah. like she comes she comes out of the fitting room and she's trying to t- talk with one of the um store's employees and and she can't hear anything around her and she can't be heard by anyone around her she's completely isolated and it, and it occurs within all this like nexus of uh, isolated capitalist labor right the the general store where all of your products just magically appear on the shelf completely isolated from the labor that create them and like i I think this is interesting because it it isolates her as as a consumer and forces her to exist outside of kind of the context of labor where in in kind of like our real lived condition it's the labor that is both totally silent and also um, completely unable to engage with the world around it. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point, and not something I'd necessarily brought. Uh, I'd sort of clicked onto with uh, this film, um, but it isn't just. I, f- I feel like it's a little reductive to kind of just see this in terms of like a labor question, right? True, because. Uh, because there's something that really interesting that happens when um, it's Mary, right? Yeah. yeah, where she has has one of these moments and she runs out and she sees one of these kind of ghoulish faces and kind of turns to run 
and immediately runs into somebody who's a doctor? Yes, yes, yes. Dr. Samuels. Uh, Dr. Samuels, yes, who says, who immediately wants to kind of fix uh, this whatever kind of pathological episode mm-hmm. she's experiencing is. And there's even this, I, I, I think this is an intensely psychoanalytic film. Um, there's even the moment where she's asked to kind of talk about what she's going through to the back of his chair. Yep. Uh, because he's turned around so she can't see him anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's ostensibly because it's it's him writing down some notes in in a file about what they're talking mm-hmm. about. But there's this there's this kind of uh, it's very much kind of a therapy session. Oh right? yeah. What did you think about what did you think about this kind of insistence upon? psychoanalysis throughout all of this. So, so I, I, I found this to be one of the most interesting um, aspects of the film uh, for me next to probably like what happened to Mary as, as like a philosophical question, like, like what happened to her after the crash and then the architecture of the yeah. film and then Dr. Samuels <laughs> comes in third for me for like, like things that just like I, I'm still chewing on and processing, but like my favorite line in the film so, so D- Dr. Samuel spends over an hour psychoanalyzing Mary and having Mary to do like the classic. It's 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 very Freudian. It's the classic like like you're you're faced away from the therapist, just kind of talking to nowhere, and they're busy scribbling notes yeah, about yeah. you. But then like they they have a little conversation about this, and then Dr. Samuel's just lays out the greatest line, and that's I'm not a psychiatrist, and perhaps I'm being a little clumsy with this. <laughs> and it's like 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 he he just like like this is like the most like it's it's like it's like that 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 like twitter meme that pops up every now and then where it's like lord give me the confidence of like some dumbass white guy <laughs> but like like he's not he, like like for, from the first scene where he encounters mary like like he makes it a point to be like i'm a doctor like like come to my office it's right over here quick quickly now i'm a doctor and like, like mm. it, he seems to be intimating that he's a doctor of the mind because Mary isn't, she, she's not visibly physically injured at all. It's very clearly a, a mental problem she's going through. And mm-hmm. then they go into this therapy setting only for Dr. Samuels to reveal his hand as, you know, like, is he a podiatrist? Like, what kind of doctor is he? What kind of doctor is this? Yeah, to, to, to just a be part, able to be like, you know, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll psychoanalyze, sure. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm not one of these big, city fancy <laughs> psychoanalyst but I'm a, I'm a humble country foot doctor but i'll fix your brain but i mean here's the thing though right here's the thing he, he says i'm not a psychoanalyst but he clearly is a psychoanalyst right yeah right? yeah this there's this there's this sort of structural disavowal uh that runs throughout his character mm-hmm. where he goes ah. and maybe it's because i don't know maybe maybe like american culture thought that psychoanalysts were too weird or that they they you know, Freudianism had kind of fallen out of vogue a little bit because it was the 60s and that was the kind of start of the anti-psychiatry movement. Yeah. But he's clearly a psychoanalyst. Like, if this film was made 10 years earlier, there would be no need to disavow that he was a psychoanalyst. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's really interesting. And I think that... Um, so so the, the way it's shot when he's turned, faced away in his chair and Mary's kind of talking to nowhere, um, it's it's kind of set up for a reveal and the reveal is, Oh, it's just him. He's been sitting there the whole time. But then towards the end of the film, when um, 
Mary's had several traumatic experiences where, where, where she becomes kind of phantasmal in the world and unable to interact with it. Mm. And after multiple run-ins with um, the man, who's kind of like this psychopomp, this figure of death, uh, she she runs back to da- Dr. Samuel's office because, like, you know, despite Dr. Samuel's incompetence, he does represent some kind of safe haven and, and hope for a, a healed future for Mary. And... Mm. You know, she she starts talking to him because the, it's it's the same shot. The chair is faced away. You know, she thinks it's him, and the chair spins around, and it's the man again. It's 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 uh uh, uh Herc Harvey's character, that figure of death. And mm-hmm. like like I loved that reveal so much. It was just like it was perfect. It was expertly filmed and handled, and and it it, it replaces this overconfident. Do- doctor of an unknown background and like for the record we don't know that he's a medical doctor you know he could he could be doctor of literature trying to do this <laughs> it's like on a plane is there <laughs> is there a doctor on board and i'm just like uh yes there is <laughs> can i help you with any of your medical pro no I'm, i don't do that kind of thing wrong I'm kind sorry. Of <laughs> but would you like uh, a journal article on the uh, importance of economics to Bram Stoker's Dracula? <laughs> I am definitely there for you. I am here to help. <laughs> and and, and that, that's what I find interesting, that the film replaces his character with a literal figure of death. It, 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 it on a metaphorical level, aligns Freudian psychoanalysis with dying. I mean, well, that's in a way that's that's exactly what psychoanalysis analysis is is for. You know, psychoanalysis is there to prepare you for life, and what is life if not something finite? Yeah. Right. It's there basically to prepare you to getting through life and arriving at uh, its conclusion, however it might come. Yeah. So yeah, like like I say, I think it's interesting that like Dead of Night, which is made less than twenty years earlier, has somebody. Uh, in there, who is a psychiatrist, and it, who actually is a is um as as a psychoanalyst, they appear to kind of help somebody interpret this dream that they've been having. Um, so it's really interesting to me that suddenly psychoanalysis sort of gets kind of cut out of German expressionism because it relies so heavily on on like dream logic and surrealism mm-hmm. and like a very deliberately non-realist way of making a film. Uh, so I'm I'm. It, it's niggling at me. I'm, I'm sort of curious to know why didn't they just go, yeah, he's, he can be a psychiatrist. It's fine. It wouldn't be a problem. But I like the fact that this, this uh, you know, psychoanalytic authority figure does get replaced with this kind of ghastly, demonic, uh, ghoulish face of the man right towards the film's end. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's kind of like a lot of levels where you can read this on, right? Because all of the things that... Like German Expressionism came about during the height of like Freudian psychoanalysis, a, a decidedly German way of, of approach, approaching psychology. But a, a lot of the things that psychoanalysis and exp- oh, yeah, sorry, go oh, ahead. So a lot of the things that psychoanalysis deals with and a lot of the logics and ways it approaches the world, like, um, you know, surrealism, dream logic, the unconscious, you know, like, like, like existing simultaneously as a being, making conscious decisions, but also being totally controlled by this network of unknowable thoughts deep within you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, like all, all, of, all of those kind of conceptions also exist outside of the realm of psychoanalysis and they're not exclusive to it. And I think that that's something that this film kind of, kind of speaks to 
And uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And another 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 thing that I was kind of considering with, um, especially the, like like you were saying that like you know like psychoanalysis specifically kind of like you know like prepares you for, is is like meant to prepare you for life and what is life if not finite but i also think that's kind of like the, one of the larger functions of psychology and psychiatry in in general and more broadly you know whether whether you're getting over or working through like deep-seated personal trauma whether um you choose to read being uh neuroatypical as just like a, a brain chemistry issue and you're going the psychiatry route and that's helping you or you're doing like cognitive behavioral therapy, or you found someone who's still doing old school couch Freudian stuff. Like the the whole goal is to give you a measure of closure for for the like cracks in your life and and to help you function and and to make it through this. And Mary is dead, you know, is is one of the readings of the film, and her closure is her acceptance. Of, of her awareness as her position within this class that she's trying to reject. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I absolutely, I completely agree. And I think, I think that the concept of closure is, is, is a very, uh, is both a therapeutic one and a narrative category as well. Right. Yeah. You know, we need, we need closure, uh, in order to kind of uh, deal with the uh, narratives and stories that we find ourselves imbricated within, we need closure to deal with the uh, ways in which, you know, stories function as a kind of form, and we need them sort of to make sense of ourselves. Yeah. And one of the, one of the ways in which uh, the Gothic and psychoanalysis actually have a great deal in common is they all depend upon this sort of inability of people to make sense of themselves yeah absolutely and i think that's that's kind of key to mary's position in in, in this film and i think that um one, one another interesting thing that i was thinking of throughout throughout this film is class and, and how how class relates to it because throughout the course of the film you you've got all um several kind of figures of the ruling class you have a factory owner you have a church father and you have um so some some kind of doctor all all in, mm, all kind yeah. of insisting that like like mary mary take this job mary like like kind of accept this place like like stay stay away from the abandoned carnival go go work in the church and keep your head down it, it is kind of like ultimately what they all are getting towards yeah, meanwhile yeah. Uh, mary is is in this liminal space where she's half aware of of who she is now and, and and what class she's actually a part of but there's this entire like hegemonic system designed to keep her blind to it yeah and there are moments where she experiences that very forcefully these these kind of moments where she becomes invisible right you become completely unknowable you become a kind of abject externalized figure that the social order doesn't seem capable of even acknowledging mm -hmm. and that's that's and it's in those moments that she starts kind of seeing these uh figures exploring the ways in which they connect to the the carnival that she's been told to stay away from yeah yeah uh, which it might be worth then kind of talking a little bit about the the carnival 
uh, and and what you think the kind of importance of it is. Oh man, blah, 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 blah. we are now we are now entering into the architecture zone. And, oh, and unfortunate, yeah, unfortunately, it. this film does not afford me to give any of my incredibly, uh, apparently heretical opinions about brutalism and how awesome it is. But I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. We'll leave that aside. Hopefully it'll come up later. <clears throat> but um, so so the history of the salt air space is very interesting for me. The carnival uh, started as this lakeside resort and then it became mm-hmm. a dance hall, and then finally a carnival, and then years happen leading to its uh, present, as of the movie, state of decay, right? During its life, it was it was the heart of a community in one way or another, like a gathering place, a source of community. And, and interestingly, now in its decay, it's still a source of community, but for this, this dead and, and othered class. It's still a gathering place, but this time for the dispossessed, for, for the people forced out by the, he, uh, the the kind of hegemonic forces of the church father, the factory owner, the, the psychiatrist. Like, like these people forced to the margins are, are now the people that congregate mm-hmm. there. And what's interesting to me about this is like, I was kind of thinking about these spaces in horror in a broader context, and they're usually... Like, they're usually places like the Salt Air Carnival. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're in a state of decay. They're outside of the general purview of, of a place you would encounter. But this is also true for our cities as well as our rural landscapes, right? Like, similar structures yeah. are, are all over the place. Abandoned factories in the heart of a city, abandoned churches and buildings where, where the marginalized go to congregate. Just like the way that we treat the dead. We, we pass by the homeless on the side of the road without the slightest consideration, right? They're, they're like Mary in this film, unable to communicate or be communicated to. They're, 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 they're living in the carnival of souls, right? There are ghosts in our world. And like this movie makes confronting them horrific for Mary, it's Mary recognizing class is, is how I would read this from, from a left perspective, right? Mary coming to the realization that she is is part of the dead, that 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 she is with these these phantasms, these ghouls, these zombies, and that the whole time mm. the reason she's been feeling out of place in the world isn't because she doesn't belong anywhere. It's because she she's part of this lower class, and the the reason that it's so horrific, especially for Mary, it's not because they are horrific. It's it's because Mary and by extension all of us are horrific. I that's interesting because I don't know I don't know if I would read it in exactly the same way. Yeah, well, where would you um, where would you break from that reading? So I don't think that she belongs to that class. Yeah. Right. The horror the horror isn't isn't that you've discovered your true class position. The horror is that your true class position no longer affords you the privileges, privileges Ooh, okay, yeah. of not of of not seeing anymore oh yeah oh i really like, like that okay i like this keep going so i'm t- i'm taking a more sort of freudian way of reading this Do right it. <laughs> so it, so actually so much of a kind of day-to-day existence depends upon almost structural disavowal of absolutely things. you know we we don't want to know uh i mean if you can if you think of the ways in which you know the kind of functions of global capitalism depend upon chosen ignorance 
Uh, I think a kind of really obvious example would be issues around animal welfare. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> There's something I'm very it, it, inclined to to get down with. It is it isn't that people don't know, it's that people don't want yeah. to know. And that's a real that's a really important difference. And it's not one that we're comfortable talking about because that means there are things that we ourselves don't want to know, that we ourselves systematically hide from ourselves. And this is this is what like classic Freudian psychoanalysis is supposed to do. It's supposed to reveal to us the things that we have stopped admitting about ourselves. Ooh, I like this. This is a good line. Um, and so it's not a surprise then that like the Carnival of Souls is a horrific place for her because finally all of the things that we kind of hide away from ourselves you can no longer ignore. Yeah, I, I really, really like this because... And I think um, to, to, build, to build off of your excellent, amazing, and completely without flaw point. <laughs> is, um, so, so towards, towards the, the, the final climax of the, of the scene, we see Mary having some manner of fun for the first time. You know, yes, she, exactly. she becomes, she, she joins in with characters that, that are known in the casting as the dancing zombies. Mm -hmm. um, yep. and, and she herself becomes one. We see her wearing the same makeup that the man wears, that all the zombies wear. Right. For, for the first time, she kind of confronts this. She becomes part of it and she finds comradeship and personal contact for the first time. Right. The, the, yeah, exactly. the entire movie has 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 been um, kind of her unable or her unable, being unable or unwilling to fit in with the world and with the world of like normies. It, I guess that's a way to put it. Nor normies <laughs> and, and the upwardly mobile. Yeah, and exactly. Like, so. Sorry, oh, I was, I was, was going to say like 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 to like to, to bring in to to bring in some Lacan because we're still we're still coming off the heels of the Zizek Peterson debate, and I feel that like I'm going to be riding <laughs> waves from that for a while. But like 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 her shock and her fear at the sight of the zombie is 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 kind of building off of what you were saying, like the prison in her own mind, right? Like it's 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 the forces of capital that have colonized her very thoughts to the point where like seeing anything outside of the confines of like bucolic 60s early 60s late 50s capitalism is psychologically damaging mm. to her yeah absolutely i think it's i think it's like to to exist as a as a kind of subject in the world depends upon to some extent this willingness to kind of like ignore the stuff which is like too difficult to deal with you know we have to in a way yeah we have to kind of pretend that you know everything's fine and that we're like and but that is a way in which kind of capitalist ideology can perpetuate itself so i think that moment is incredibly interesting where she uh yeah joins in and finds some fun and solidarity with these uh creatures these these dancing zombies because it's a moment where you see the idea that there could be what does it what does it mean to kind of live without any of that self-deception yeah Right, it means it means to be a kind. It necessitates being an outcast. It necessitates being someone who no longer gets to fit in with the kind of pleasant myths and and self deceptions of bourgeois society. You know, if you're if you're one of the one in the Carnival of Souls, you don't get to go to the to the department mm -hmm. store to go looking for a new new dress yeah. anymore. But but what you do get is you get this kind of. I, I I was gonna say like a kind of moment of solidarity, but I don't know if that's too strong a term. I I I, I don't think it is. Like I think it even 
it even it even for me kind of transcends that a, a little bit because it's not it's not it's not so much solidarity mary doesn't go to the carnival and and realize that her position doesn't change but she recognizes the existence of of this this separate othered class and joins them it's that she she goes there and she's forced to realize that she's one of them you know yes, like like, yeah, yeah, like exactly. mary, mary reminds me of like like um there's that there's that post that's been going around twitter where where it's, it's something it's something to the effect of like like dudes always calling themselves capitalists but it's like where's your property where's your business you know like <laughs> and it, and it's and it's like mary mary kind of reminds me of this figure where where you know like like so somebody who might say something like oh like i love capitalism it brings us all these things but really she's like a waged employee as a church organist and and she yeah, and yeah. herself though she sees herself as part of the capitalist system she's actually being abused by it yeah it's it's the moment it's the moment of ideological collapse yeah. right the, the 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 fantasy disappears and you you see that actually what's real is this moment of this this space of the carnival mm-hmm. this place where this place where those who are you know abjected and excluded have a kind of common ground and I, yeah and i think um, i think it's it's really telling too because in the in the final scene of the movie uh, the, 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 like, like all of these, all of these like titular authority figures, not titular, um, all of these authority figures that have, uh, been, been kind of dotted throughout the movie that have all tried to convince Mary to, to like hold the straight and narrow of her church organist job and shopping and stuff mm. like that. They, they all, they all go to find her and they find her car and they find us, you know, like, like it's, 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 it's very, very interesting that final scene because there's the single set of footprints on the beach right yeah, and yeah like 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 the cops are like like okay well there's the car and then there's a single set of footprints and then they just stop and like like the, these people yeah. are categorically unable to see mary now now that she has kind of accepted her place within the carnival of souls and they're they're likewise not able to see all of the people who exist inside this carnival like like these people are locked outside of the hegemonic system yeah, but it isn't. It isn't just an economic. Exclusion. Oh no, no, yeah, not at all. An important thing to kind of bring up because, uh, you know, the carnival is it's 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 something else entirely, isn't it? It's a space in which sort of anything anything can happen at the carnival, yeah. right? Anything it can. It's a place which is which is dangerous, but also the kind of place that you kind of want to go to. We get drawn out of the sort of confines of 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 uh i don't know bourgeois domesticity yes, absolutely to go to the carnival and it's a way of kind of i mean the gothic is always fascinating with these these uh liminal spate of spaces these kind of edges on 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 the on the realm between sort of what what is uh commonly accepted and what's seen as excluded or other and carnivals i think still are a place in which uh there is this opportunity to, to to kind of peel away the layers of kind of uh, mundane reality and see see the kind of true grotesque spectacle that's underneath. Yeah, I, I think um, this this is why I think Halloween is such an important <laughs> leftist holiday. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I completely like, agree. Not not joking. Totally sincere. No, I one hundred percent non non ironically agree with that. I am not a huge irony fan, and and I totally earnestly believe in the transformative potential of things like this. Because the, 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 the like, you're absolutely right. This isn't just like like class. Like I've 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 been I've just been using class as as my my lens of analysis for the film. But you can also read the carnival through 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 any other kind kind of othered line, right? Right. You can you can read yeah. read the carnival yeah, yeah. as racial identity. You could read um, Mary's entrance into the carnival as her coming out. You know, as as that, I, that's as, as, yeah. as someone who kind of like because it's it's transgression of a liminal space, right? Mary, Mary is negating all of the stark binaries of her life when she enters the carnival, right? It's it's it can be read as like the realization that she's not hetero. It could possibly be read as the realization that she's not cis. It can be it can be her coming out and, and realizing um, like a kink aspect of her identity that that is kind of exiling her from from like the the uh, starched collar church organ crowd. Right, right. There are, there are, or even like, like a, a political consciousness that she's gaining. Right, like, like all of these permutations kind of successfully read, in my opinion, into her entrance into the carnival. It just kind of depends on which lens you want to approach the film with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think some of those would be really interesting ways of reading the film, actually. Um, oh, and yeah. Some of them are, are ways of which I, I had not even considered reading it. Yeah, I think um, um, I haven't, I haven't thought enough on this yet to really get into it. But there's like. I, I'm I'm kind of I'm really interested in how dominant Mary's character is throughout the entire film, right? Like 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 yeah. after we, we heard the first scene we see with her, she's very passive. You know, she she's literally in the passenger seat of a car that crashes and leads to uh, uh, potentially her death, or or maybe rebirth as as some othered figure. But but during during the 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 traumatic event of the car crash that that dislodges her, she's she's the passenger someone else is in total control even though she clearly disagrees with the course of events there she does nothing about it but then through the rest of the film she's she's only doing what she wants she's yeah and this is this is another thing that you could kind of put into that um psychoanalytic point of view right she she takes some agency she's agential she makes choices rather than kind of and that's what puts you at the kind of risk of expulsion from the norms of, of an ideological terrain of like acceptable, uh, acceptable behavior. Yeah, yeah. A- agency, genuine agency, genuine, genuine self-assertion is always something, well, not always, but can very often be something that leads to people, if you, if you make the choice to go against the the deeply deeply ingrained and incredibly well-maintained disciplinary functions of of the kind of ideological landscape of a given society then there are always kind of punishments that come your way absolutely and i think um this leads into another thing like like we can we can really get into or at least touch on uh briefly here like like a feminist reading of this film because all all, all of like Yeah, yeah Every every single character that she interacts with, with the exception of um, the shopkeepers and Mrs. Thomas, are are kind of like these really dominant men who are trying to control the course of her life. And and Mrs. Thomas kind of is outside of this because she 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 doesn't care isn't the right word, but she's cool with Mary making her own choices, right? And, yeah, yeah. But like. <clears throat> 
uh, uh, the the minister. I'm sorry, I referred to him as the father earlier, but he's actually a minister. Uh, played by Art Ellison. We have um, the Organ Factory boss. We have Doctor Samuels. Uh, we have the cops. Um, even the mechanic in in the one scene that he's in. Like they're all they're all yeah. kind of trying to dictate what Mary does with her life and how she uses it. And like like even even the figure of death is is a masculine figure in this so so even even as she realizes uh, p- potentially some liberatory element within the carnival it's nevertheless still kind of the domain of men and and under un, under like a patriarchal purview that, that that she is able to find some sort of liberatory nature in the carnival or per- perhaps even not liberatory mm. That's an interesting idea, actually. Um, this notion that um, there's that I was that what you were saying it made me think of. There's a very interesting scene in the film where she's playing the organ in the church, mm-hmm. right? And it starts off just kind of like fairly generic, <laughs> generic church music. <laughs> generic church um, organ, yeah. Number three, um, but there's also as the scene goes on, there's this like the music becomes kind of disquieting and slightly strange and atonal and yes. weird. And then the minister comes back in and goes, sacrilege, mm-hmm. you know, this, this exercise of her own artistic agency, you know, it's, it's sacrilegious. How could she, how could she do, you know, do you have no respect? <laughs> yeah. And she, and she's told she has to resign. Yep. She's told she has to resign from her job because she made the choice to, to sort of, present something of herself that was not what these people thought is acceptable for someone like her. Yeah, and I find um the organ is is incredibly interesting for me in this film. Right? It reminds me you know like like we we mentioned the the parallels with Night of the Living Dead earlier and I think the organ really parallels with Night of the Living Dead, not not on a musical level. But on the fact that like a lot of what happened in the Night of Living Dead that was really successful happened because like George Romero didn't have a lot of money and he was filming in Pittsburgh, so he had to work with what was given to him. And the organ, the organ is yeah. the same way. But um, the fact that Mary plays an organ at church is is very interesting, right? You know, the organ as an instrument is like the sonic nexus of horror, and it's probably more than any other uh, instrument or source of sound synonymous with the genre, right? And it's also yeah, it's central totally. to her life and her life as just passing through the world, right? And the organ score in this film is just so It's good. perfect, yeah. And like, the, you know, the, the organ factory boss uh, character questions Mary's apathy and even tells her to put her soul into it, right? But just as like the haunting music of the organ floats through the world and unsettles us as it passes, Mary's life, or Mary like exists as like, the harbinger of uncertainty and death floating through the lives of everyone around her, unsettling them in the process, right? She is the organ music. Well, this gives me a chance to talk about my hot take on the ending. Let's hear it. Drop some Uh, bars. Let's do this. (laughs) Well, given what you've just said, it does make it interesting to think that maybe, uh, like she was never alive. Oh, even, even predating the crash. Yeah, there's this, there's this, there's this, you know, she's seen as being someone who's soulless, which is a really, I don't know if that's, you know, I'm clutching at straws here, but maybe, because does anybody talk to her? 
before the crash? No, no. She's, she's just passive in the car. Directly yeah. to her. Yeah. So what if she was never alive, right? What if... I mean, in a way, this that kind of... It plays out like uh, a little bit like Jacob's Ladder. Um, but what do you think? What do you think about that? I suppose that means we should probably talk about the ending. Yes, we, we should definitely talk more about the ending. I completely agree. Um, so, so for me, like... I honestly don't know how to approach Mary's state as being alive or dead or, or something in between. And like the fact that the movie is so ambiguous about it, the, the fact that the movie is, is, is kind of the movie itself resists any, any kind of attempt to collapse this dialogue in, into like a sixth sense kind of M night Shyamalan yeah, yeah, yeah. take, you know, like it turns out it turns out for those of you who've not seen the sixth sense it turns out right that at the end it turns out to have been a giant waste of your <laughs> time <laughs> oh M. Night Shyamalan everybody's favorite hack yeah no no not very not very good perhaps we'll, no we're, we're uh, maybe 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 we'll do an M. Night Shyamalan movie one day if we get are desperate you, are and you tired su- are you suggest are you, are you suggesting what I think you're suggesting you monster that we, that we watch M. Night Shyamalan's The Village <laughs> uh the greatest survivalist of all time oh man oh that film anyway so this- yes this is very much not like that no right? there no. is a kind of uh irreconcilable it is irresolvable deep. it is a deep ambivalence and and what, what i was getting at is that like I don't know if the movie allows you to say for certain in any one direction, whether she was alive or dead. And I also don't know if the movie allows you to say that death is even the appropriate way to read this at the end, because, because certainly the makeup, the makeup on these figures is like, like the like dark, like totally pallid dark circles around the eyes. It's meant to signify a loss of life in a very traditional kind of sense. But, but at the same time, like, like like these figures aren't depicted at all as like traditional psychopomps or like a traditional kind of crossing over or anything like that it's a much more like speculative and weird approach to to crossing over from one like format of existence and into another yeah yeah no absolutely and i think this is what makes it such a kind of compelling film to analyze right this constant shifting between the kind of uh, these sort of um, liminal states, and this is why I think it's so important that the carnival is at the center of that, because I think the carnival is always a kind of liminal space. You know, it's the carnival at which anything can happen. It's where the kind of normal, in inverted commas, normal rules get suspended or set aside for a little while, and it, you know, and and it's there that you kind of. You know, you kind of step outside of the world, as it were, right? So I think it's I think it's a fascinating film, mm-hmm. um, and like yeah, like you, I don't really think that there can be an easy resolution to it. Yeah, and that's one of the things I like about it so much. Is it is it unlike unlike an M Night Shyamalan movie, which like if if this would have been something more in the vein of Sixth Sense, the final scene would have been like them fishing the car out of the water, and like I don't know, she's been dead the whole time. Oh, they never had a chance. They they couldn't even get out of the car. The end. 
Yeah. Um, well, actually, actually, that, I, this, I kick that back because the final scene is is back back in Kansas, and and the car is pulled from the river, and Mary's body is in the front seat along with the other women that were in the car. And yeah. and I think that like, so so how do we read that then? How do we read that? Because I I think that makes it even more weird when we read through this because she's not a ghost. Right. You know, she died in that car crash, but then she lived and went on past it. It's like this weird Schrodinger's cat kind of split where she where she's both yeah, dead at the bottom of a river and alive going on this 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 kind of dark quest, if you will, because like she, she's certainly not a phantom, you know, even though she's deeply detached and at times phantasmal. She's not operating like a ghost uh, traditionally would passing through walls, being unable to interact She's she's somewhat like blinkered in in existence, occasionally flickering out to certain degrees and then flickering back in. Well, this is this is one of the things that I think I think you've hit on something in the structure of it that means it's really suited to a psychoanalytic reading, because that's the logic of a dream, right? You never, if you're dreaming, you never stop to go. Well, how did I get to a certain place, or what what's the kind of causal chain? So the causal chain that underpins a kind of realist narrative cinema can be completely disregarded, especially by that twist at the end. So if anything, this is, it's, it's arguably like the, all of the events of the film happen in the moments when uh, the car goes off the bridge and before it hits the water. Ooh, okay, so this is like, um, uh, what, what is, what is the... the um... What is that short story? Hang on. I have to look up the title of this. Bop, 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 bop. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by um, Ambrose Bierce. You know, where, where the, um, the, the entire story takes place between a, a, a man being kicked off a bridge to be hanged and and the rope going taut at the end yeah absolutely and and um so that that's one way yeah. of actually reading this film um that because as i say this doesn't depend upon anything other than the logic of a dream yeah right? true um you know it's never kind of clear how she gets to any of the places that she sort of arrives at she just sort of turns up uh and even the car which is uh her kind of mode of getting her across to, to Utah is like notoriously unreliable. Mm -hmm. She ha actually has to take it to the garage. And there's like a little kind of strange dream sequence there too. Um, so I, I think there's, there's, I think that's an interesting way of reading the film and it kind of allows, it sort of certainly explains why someone like David Lynch is such a big fan yeah, of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, I really like your point about how even though even though we do have a, a solidified ending where where we see her 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 dead body that that's been recovered, and and there is the potential to read the entire thing as a very like um, incident at Owl Creek Bridge kind of dream sequence existing between the span hmm. of the car going over and her body being found. I, I think. Yeah, that, um, I think. I but think... there there's still so much. Because of of the speculative and weird nature of the film, there, there there's still a lot of space that can't be reduced down into that, you know, and and it, and it gives it gives potential for for I think um, 
strange stranger readings than 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 the uh like like the snow globe approach okay go on go on give us give give us a strange reading then well so so you know we 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 can read everything as as kind of like you know like the 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 final fever dream of her brain as 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 you know the car fills with sand and water and sinks deep into the river and and we can also read it as like you know the equivalent of that but but as as a spiritual event for her like her her you know i you know maybe reliving the faults of her life and crossing over or something like that but i think that like you know like like we we don't we don't get any real i think deaf definitive answer in any direction which one is correct right her carvey doesn't I think that the difference between her, like, like her Harvey's approach and M. Night Shyamalan's approach in the sixth sense is like M. Night Shyamalan very much wants you to, to have got it by the end of the film. Like M. Night Shyamalan made the yeah, sixth yeah. sense less like a horror movie and more like a detective movie, right? Where you, yeah. you're given all of these clues and like, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, if you're really clever, you, you have figured it out before the movie's over. Yeah, but yeah, her, her Harvey does not give you any of that. Her Harvey is much more uh, in the style of David Lynch, refusing to give you those those little breadcrumbs, refusing to to spell out in one way or another what's exactly happening to Mary. And I think it's entirely possible to read this as like she is simultaneously dead in the car in the bottom of the river and alive outside of the car, headed to Salt Lake City, where she will ultimately disappear when her body is recovered. Existing in some kind of like uh, philosophical and spiritual quantum state, where she is both alive and dead. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, and I think that allows for the kind of heterogeneity of yeah. this film to sort of really stay in place, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does deeply. I think I think I think it deeply queers any reading of this film because you can't ever definitively say which one of these paths is kind of like which which is the true reading of the film her her status as yes. alive dead or somewhere in between throughout the duration of it yeah yeah and I think that there's there there's a lot of left readings of that right because like like much like our contemporary condition under capital you know, like we're 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 kind of like ground into the same space, like like forced to be simultaneously alive and simultaneously deadened within the system, and to sort of uh, make kind of, kind of complicate that a little bit further, there is the kind of contingency of everything as well, right? This is uh, we haven't really mentioned this, but given that we're in the aftermath of the Jordan B. Peterson Slavoj Žižek, which debate, we all survived somehow, um, that was fantastic. Incredible work, all of us. <laughs> uh, the me the the memes were as expected. Oh, very it was good. glorious. Um, but Žižek makes this point that for him, what's important to emphasize is the kind of contingency and and instability of history, mm-hmm. and that. To, to act in any direction is to make a mistake and it's all about what kind of mistake are you willing to put up with and i think that's a really that's an, that's something that i was thinking about watching this film because uh you know what can you do in the carnival of souls you have to just kind of deal with it yeah right you have to go 
any choice that you make, you'll end up in the back in the river. Yeah. There's a question of focalization here, like like which what what does it say about the kind of narratological framework from which you're going to begin your analysis? Because your analysis yeah depends on whether you want to read this as some some kind of spiritual or uh, psychological dream that she's having as as the car crashes and and kind of like you know like the final death throes of her brain piecing together imagery and sights as as she, she passes away or is this um you know like like her her spirit going on like a, a quest to cross over you know and her navigating that space mm. or, or or some weirder like like state where she she exists both alive and dead for a short span of time and i think which which framework you choose ultimately dictates a lot about your kind of closing analysis of this film and i like that about this movie that this movie really resists um one simple narrative right like like it's kind of it's it's hard for movies to be ambiguous because because of their linear nature and and their visual nature it's it's hard to show ambiguity yeah. in, in in a format that is both defined by linear narrative and and visual imagery Mm-hmm. yeah i think that's true but this this film nails it it's it's incredible when you think about just how little this film had to work with as well you know oh yeah yeah it's it's exciting uh, there was so so little that it had to work with and it manages to do so much like there's ba- barely any special effects in this there's you know there's barely any uh there's barely any kind of like uh violence it's so atmospheric it's done all on atmosphere it's all done on uh every kind of like innovative camera movement it's done on those incredibly beautiful compositions that amazing use of light and it's this kind of i'm going to be thinking about this for a long time it's like it is like the dark tower i'm going to be <laughs> this is going to be in my head for for a long time nice i'm i'm really glad that the dark tower has like thoroughly consumed space in your brain <laughs> um Ed, is there anything else you wanted to kind of add in um i i think like like i really like movies that are strange on some fundamental technical level because it allows you to go off on tangents and ramble for an eternity <laughs> um as i am wont to do but I think I think that this is a good place to kind of uh, close out this episode. I think um, ending on a note that uh, Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls from 1962 is an incredibly ambiguous film, which which allows you to to fully engage kind of your your theoretical and and critical analysis uh, uh, muscles and skills to to, to navigate the yeah, maze absolutely. of of the text of the film. Um, good choice, Ash good choice and i hope two this for two more than makes two up for two <laughs> for for darren aronofsky's mother that puts a lot of pressure on me for the next one i've got to get it right um <laughs> yeah yeah i mean just don't just don't pick mother again for some horrible reason <laughs> uh next week mother by darren ah! aronofsky <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay spooky. spooky.